Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Annie. And I'm Ella. And this is Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstories of science. For millennia, we have tried to coax rain from the clouds in just about every way imaginable. We've prayed for it. We danced for it. At one point, we thought we could blast it out of the air with dynamite. Yeah, that didn't work so well, but it did cause a bunch of fires. But one of my favorite stories about rainmaking is about a guy named Charles Hatfield. I would say that Charles Hatfield was America's great rainmaker or great rain faker. We, we really don't know which. Cynthia Barnett, author of Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. Charles Hatfield was a traveling rainmaker. Or moisture accelerator. That is actually what he called himself. He'd travel around Southern California, promising rain to anyone who would pay. And pretty soon, he gained a reputation for actually delivering the goods. He got credit for filling up streams and reservoirs. But wherever he went, he was hounded by the Weather Bureau who wanted to expose him as a fraud. Oh, absolutely. The chief of uh, meteorology, he literally would chase him around the nation with letters, and he would call reporters and try to get exposés written on him. Charles Hadfield was not the first person to promise rain for cash. Traveling rainmakers descended on the American Great Plains in the 1890s. And the Weather Bureau for years was telling farmers and governments, stop giving money to these people. They do not actually make it rain. That is just happening on its own. But no one would listen, of course, to the stuffy scientists at the Weather Bureau. And in late 1915, the city of San Diego strikes a deal with Hatfield. They'll give him $10,000 if he can fill up their reservoir. Now, before we mention these earlier rainmakers who set off dynamite to make it rain, not Hatfield. Hatfield was a lover, not a fighter. I do not fight nature, as Dyron Forth, Jewell, and several others have done, by means of dynamic bombs and other explosives. I woo her by means of this subtle attraction. Hatfield brews up a secret chemical formula and gets to work wooing nature, if you will, Mm -hmm. in the woods east of San Diego. He was a showman in many ways. He was very fit and he would race up and down these platforms. Wooden platforms about 20 feet high. And wave his hands around and sort of waft the chemicals into the sky. Hatfield keeps this up for a few days. And wouldn't you know that the rain began to fall and then the rain began to pound and it didn't let up for weeks. It rains so much that it floods. Bridges collapse, houses are swept away. Up to 50 people are killed. And Hatfield makes himself scarce, reportedly fleeing on horseback before armed vigilantes can catch him. Today's episode, the real science of weather control. Charles Hatfield's secret formula died with him. But in the 1940s, a team of scientists at General Electric did come up with a recipe for making rain. And pretty soon they learned, just like Hatfield, that when you try to take credit for the weather, you might also get the blame. And one of those GE rainmakers, the scientist at the center of this story, he's a baby-faced chemist with a familiar name, Bernard Vonnegut. As in the older brother of Kurt Vonnegut. And as the GE scientists are making it rain, little brother Kurt is watching. Watching and writing. That's coming up on Undiscovered.
1947 was shaping up to be a very rough year for Kurt Vonnegut. He's 24 years old, recently married, but he's working grueling hours as a reporter at a news agency and writing his own stuff on the side. Stories that his wife likes, but no one will publish. In the Vonnegut family at this point, his older brother Bernie, he's the successful one. He has a Ph.D. in physical chemistry from MIT. Fancy. And he landed a job right after the war at General Electric. But Kurt's luck is about to change, because with a bit of help from his older brother, Bernie, he gets a job at GE, too, writing press stories, a move that would become pivotal for his fiction career. So when you think of General Electric, I don't know about you, Annie, but I think of... Light bulbs. Right. Light bulbs, refrigerators, and ads like this. Here's friend-husband, a little early tonight, just to see how the little wife likes her new birthday present. Does she like it? She does. It's her new stove for cooking him dinner. Great score. It's the last word, she says, and it must be because it's a GE. GE was a manufacturer of kitchen appliances and light bulbs, yes. It was also one of the nation's biggest defense contractors through the Second World War. So it's this very sturdy, serious, all-American brand. But in the 1940s, At the heart of GE headquarters in Schenectady, New York, there's an oddball department full of employees unconcerned with profits or national security or keeping hubby fed, the GE Research Lab. The GE Research Lab was a scientist's fun house. The founder of the lab was a real character. He chain-smoked cigars, kept all kinds of deadly creatures, alligators, and rattlesnakes. So maybe it's not too surprising that the lab was kind of a quirky place. Its philosophy sounds actually a lot like Google's 20% concept. You let your researchers have fun, and the profits will follow. That struck me, too. It was kind of like, oh, this is the proto-Google General Electric. Ginger Strand is the author of The Brothers Vonnegut, where she tells the incredible story of Kurt and Bernie's days at General Electric. And it really was. The director of the lab would come in and ask the scientists, are you having fun today? That was the most important question. And in the mid-1940s, Kurt's older brother, Bernie, was part of a team of three scientists working on a pretty fun and fantastical project, controlling the weather. The team's first breakthrough happened by accident to Bernie's colleague, a guy named Vincent Schaefer. It's the summer of 1946, and for weeks, Vince has been tinkering with a GE freezer. Like a chest freezer, the kind that your Uncle Harley has in his garage, right? Inside this freezer, Vince had been making clouds, which is actually something that you can do if you have a a freezer that opens from the top. So we went to my mom's house. She has one of those drawer freezers, and we tried to recreate Vince's experiment. Which is not that hard to do. So uh, the way you, you make a cloud at home is you open the freezer. Open it! And, and you, you breathe into it. Blow, 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 blow. Uh, like a few times. Oh, yeah, it's working. And oh, yeah. you have a cloud. Like, it, it, kind of, it kind of looks like a fog has descended into your freezer drawer. So Vince has this cloud it's sitting compliantly in his freezer. But that's not, that's not really the goal of his experiment. The goal is to try to make that cloud make snow. And it's actually an interesting question if you think about it. Why is it that some clouds make snow or rain and other clouds just float on by. They're just more motivated. Right, they're the can-do <laughs> clouds. Yeah, I can imagine that there's there's little more frustrating if I'm a farmer living through a drought than watching a cloud float past me, you know, forking over nothing. Anyway, uh, 
at General Electric, the scientists are really interested in trying to answer this question. How do you get a cloud to produce snow crystals? And Vince has this idea, maybe you need a nucleus, you know, a little seed of something to kickstart that ice crystallization process. And unlike Bernie Vonnegut, who has like this fancy pants PhD from MIT, Vince is a self-taught scientist. He was the kind of guy who really was more interested in just getting out there. Let's get out there and try it. So for weeks, Vince had been throwing stuff into his GE freezer, trying to give his little cloud some something, a nucleus for snow. That was the experiment. So he's leaning into this freezer all, all day long in July, you know, spraying his little cloud with things. Diatomaceous earth, volcanic dust. You want to try some pepper? Um, that is the sound of Ella, who decided to season our cloud with a little fresh fresh black pepper that she ground into it, uh, which did exactly nothing for the ice crystallization process, as you can imagine. Yeah, nothing really worked for us or, or for, for Vince. Not at first. One day he's doing this, and it's just too hot. July 12th, 1946. It is so hot in the lab, Vince can't actually get his freezer cold enough for a cloud to form, which is actually a problem we had, too. Vince needs to cool down the freezer some more. So he grabs some dry ice, this is frozen carbon dioxide, chucks it in the freezer. And presto, there's like a miniature snowstorm. No, it didn't do anything. Wait, no, I think it did. Oh my god, it's a snowflake! One snowflake. One snowflake. Hey, good job. Okay, I think we're good. Yeah. More pepper? Eventually, we did see some snow accumulating at the bottom. It was a it was a very respectable amount of snow, but I don't think it's a snowstorm by any I means. Think maybe you do need that deep chest freezer. You know what? It wasn't a GE. That's probably that's it. the problem. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to Vince's story. Okay, so Vince strolls over to the lab next door, tells them, uh, "Hey guys, I just figured out how to make it snow." But now here's the real test. So far, they've made a cloud inside a freezer in a lab. They've made that cloud produce snow, but they don't know if it's going to work in real clouds in the sky. One day in November, Vince and a pilot, they rent this small plane, and they take off from Schenectady Airport first thing in the morning. They're flying around. They're looking for that perfect cloud to seed. And then finally, they see one, this big, fat stratus cloud hanging by Mount Greylock. It's so high, their single-engine plane takes over an hour to actually like put 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 its way up to this cloud and it's the moment of truth they fly into the belly of this cloud vince throws some dry ice out the window the cloud splits in two and sheets of snow start falling from the gap for the first time in all history there is now open to man the possibility of exerting some control over the weather probably the most remarkable achievement of the year GE wastes no time issuing press releases, and the newspapers go nuts. Dry ice turns three-mile-long cloud into snow. The first man-made snowstorm in the world's history. Spectacular sky show. The sensational conquest over nature. Now we have man-made snow and streetcar windows that really work. Just a year earlier, science had conquered the atom. Now, the weather. And it seemed like anything was possible. Although... Controlling the weather, it's not without risks. Like our traveling rainmaker, Charles Hatfield, learned in 1916. A brief epilogue to his story. After the San Diego flood, Hatfield was run out of town, and you would think that he's pretty much done for. But no, a little time passes, and Charles Hatfield decides to go back and collect payment. Because hey, he delivered, right? The reservoirs, all full. And meanwhile, the city is looking at their ruined bridges, at the farms swept away, the deaths, 
And they say you want to be paid? Sure. If you say you made it rain, we will pay you your $10,000. And you can pay us the $3.5 million in damages. Because you start tampering with the weather or claiming to tamper with the weather, you might find yourself liable. GE learns this lesson pretty quickly. Because after their big announcement, whenever a strange weather event occurs, GE gets suspected of tampering. So they come up with a plan to cover their butts. They'll make this a military project. Yes, GE scientists will keep doing their research, but the military will call the shots and run the actual cloud seeding flights. They call this Project Cirrus. And this was a complicated time to be doing research for the military. Remember, it's 1947, just two years after America dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Suddenly it became apparent that you could work on something for the good of your nation and end up causing a really significant amount of human pain and suffering. Scientists just began to think harder about their ethical duties in a world where science became one of the world's most powerful weapons. These questions were front and center for Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt was a pacifist, and as a soldier in World War II, he'd been held prisoner by the Germans. He'd been starved. He'd been forced to carry corpses. He survived the bombing of Dresden underground in the basement of a slaughterhouse. And so when he joins GE two years later and sees the research his brother's up to with the military, it's not surprising he might have some reservations about it. In fact, Kurt's very first published story, published in 1950, it has Project Cirrus written all over it. Professor, you're hotter than a $2 pistol. It's funny. That's what they said eight years ago when I first discovered this. In the short story, Report on the Barnhouse Effect, adapted into this radio drama, Professor Arthur Barnhouse develops a superpower. I call it dynamo-psychism. Just by thinking about it, Professor Barnhouse can pulverize boulders, he can move objects miles away with his mind, and he wants to use his powers to save the world. That's a nice idea. Yeah. But, unfortunately, Barnhouse makes a critical mistake. He tells the government about it. And pretty soon, the military's all over him. Yes, they will politely indulge his silly talk of saving the world, and then they ask him to please go ahead and sink some battleships. And so, realizing he has just become the military's greatest super weapon, Barnhouse goes deep into hiding. Every country in the world has its best agents out hunting for Barnhouse. Nobody can beat that kind of a manhunt. And if the wrong people find him, then we're done for. In Kurt's story... A scientist would rather go on the lam than let the military use his discovery for warfare. Kurt's brother's technology, it wasn't the atomic bomb or dynamo-psychism. It was just cloud seeding. Except weather control could be an incredible weapon. I mean, imagine making it flood on command, brewing storms over your enemies. But Bernie saw cloud seeding as a tool for incredible good. And if the military was interested in weaponizing the clouds, it wasn't clear when Project Cirrus started. It seemed that they were interested in, you know, dispersing fogs or making it rain in places where they wanted to clear the airfield so that they could land. So, yeah, that's kind of helping the war effort, but it's not making a super weapon. Not yet, anyway. After the break, Project Cirrus goes big and ends up messing with the wrong storm.
Every snowflake is different, except in one essential way. They all have six sides, all the way down to the ice's microscopic structure, where the water molecules themselves are arranged in hexagons. And that understanding, that was the key to the GE scientists' second big breakthrough. So it turns out dry ice, it's kind of a pain in the butt. You have to keep it really cold or you're constantly losing it to sublimation. You definitely do not want to breathe it in. (laughs) I think I might be suffocating. It can also really hurt your hands. Ow, that's cold. I know. Ouch. So there are a lot of reasons why you might want to look for alternatives. And that's what Bernie Vonnegut was doing one day in the GE research lab. His colleague Vince's approach had been to, you know, just throw different materials at his cloud, see what worked. Bernie went about this more programmatically, being more of a trained scientist who had sat through a ton of classes at MIT getting his PhD. Bernie pulls out his trusty chemical handbook. He starts flipping through the chemicals one by one. And sure enough, he finds one with a crystalline structure he's been looking for, silver iodide. So he tried silver iodide in the lab, and it worked great, too. It turns out silver iodide is a great nucleus for snow. Dry ice works by cooling down the water in a cloud until it freezes. But silver iodide? It's more elegant. It works because it has a six-sided crystalline structure, just like snow crystals. You throw a little seed of it into a cloud, and you basically give any water molecules it contacts a blueprint for arranging themselves into hexagons. It's like you're teaching them how to freeze. And once they freeze, any water molecules they come into contact with will freeze too. In Kurt's fourth novel, Cat's Cradle, It's a runaway crystallization of ice, not atomic fission, that destroys the world. I opened my eyes, and all the sea was ice nine. That's Kurt Vonnegut reading from his novel Cat's Cradle in a BBC documentary. The earth was locked up tight. It was winter, now and forever. In Cat's Cradle, ice nine is made of water molecules, like regular ice, but arranged in a crystalline structure that makes it rock solid at room temperature. And just a little seed of this ice nine sets off an unstoppable, uncontrolled freezing, turning every drop of water it comes into contact with into more ice nine. Cat's Cradle, it's a, how to describe? It's a a rollicking adventure uh, featuring a banana republic, some questionable midget humor. Oh God. Yeah. It's also a morality play. It's a judgment on careless scientists. So in Kurt's book, the character who invents Ice-9 is actually based on one of the GE weather scientists, Bernie's boss, GE's very own Nobel laureate, Irving Langmuir. And it is not a flattering portrayal. Irving Langmuir isn't like Professor Barnhouse, horribly burdened with the, the possible misuse of his inventions. He was just doing science. And Kurt didn't think that was okay. He was maddeningly absent-minded, and it seemed wrong to me in view of, of uh, some of his discoveries that he should be so indifferent to what became of them. So in the book, an Irving-like scientist invents Ice-9, but he doesn't take the precautions to safeguard it. So this dreadful substance, which is discovered by a man who is purely interested in truth, finally winds up in the hands of a dictator, and not to leave you in suspense, the world ends. It's a damning critique. In Cat's Cradle, the world is destroyed by a man who is purely, single-mindedly interested in truth. For Kurt, those noble pillars of science, curiosity, and seeking truth, they're not good enough. Scientists are responsible for the consequences of that truth. 
News from America includes these scenes of wild destruction when a hurricane hit the Atlantic coast. Just a few years before GE and the military get into the rainmaking biz, nature reminds us exactly who's boss. When one of the worst hurricanes in history hit the eastern seaboard. The Great Atlantic Hurricane of 1944. Atlantic City alone suffered damage estimated at over $4 million, and there were many people killed during the terrific storm which raged for a whole week from the West Indies to New England. When nature deals you a storm like the Great Atlantic Hurricane, it's not like we have great cards to play. You can board up windows, you can run for cover, but the GE scientists started to wonder, what if we could do better? They'd already made it rain, they'd, they'd made it snow. They'd manipulated nature in unprecedented ways. What if they could stop hurricanes? So you can't destroy a hurricane with cloud seeding. Hurricanes are just too big, too much energy, too much water. But what if you could make them change directions? This is something that the military saw one way and the scientists saw another way. The scientists thought, how great if we could steer hurricanes so that they don't hit the shore. And, you know, if we could steer hurricanes away from big cities, that would be wonderful. The military was thinking, wow, we could really mess with Cuba. (laughs) Okay, so maybe their motivations were a little different. But everyone on the Project Sears team is really curious to see if they can actually do this. And in 1947, they get their chance. On October 10th, the team gets word of a hurricane forming in the Caribbean. Within a few hours, it's grazed Florida, caused a series of floods in the Everglades, and then moved out into the Atlantic, where it's expected to keep moving safely out into the ocean. The Project Cirrus team sends three planes out there, and they catch up with a storm 350 miles outside of Jacksonville. They were just going to try to see if they could wobble it. You know, let's just see if we can do something with it, see if we can have an effect on it. They seed the outer edge of the hurricane with dry ice. They cover about 100 miles. The thinking is that they could disrupt the storm's dynamics, maybe nudge it a bit. Where they've seeded, they do see a gap in the clouds and they see rain falling down, but that's about it. The next morning, they head back home to Schenectady. And they encountered the worst weather that they'd ever experienced before. They were kind of, it was bumpy and choppy, and they couldn't even, Vincent had been trying to write up his notes from the experiment, and he couldn't even write because the plane was so turbulent. And they had no idea why. It was supposed to be clear on their way home. And they find out later the unexpected weather was because the hurricane had abruptly changed course. And they get back to Schenectady, and GE grabs them, immediately drags them into a press conference and says, you know, here's the problem. (laughs) Exactly the point at which the Project Cirrus people had seeded the hurricane, it took like a dogleg turn left. The hurricane rushes back to Savannah and Charleston. One person is killed, airplanes, cars are destroyed, and people are angry about this. A Miami weatherman calls this a low Yankee trick. And for Bernie, it's a bit of a wake-up call. After the hurricane, he starts speaking out more, even calls on Congress to regulate cloud seeding so that it isn't misused. But not everyone thinks this is bad news. Irving Langmuir is delighted. They had done something unprecedented. They just steered a hurricane, even if it had gone the wrong way. We purposely carried out this seeding for the purpose of trying to make the thing veer away from the land. It went the other way. Irving told the story of the hurricane at a lecture he gave at the GE Research Lab a few years later. And even though the hurricane caused a lot of damage, was a PR disaster for GE, Irving Langmuir does not sound too concerned. 
he still thinks the science was worth doing. And instead of the hurricane going on in this direction, as the Weather Bureau had forecast, within a six-hour period, it started to go back, <laughs> and it did that. Nobody has ever wanted to repeat that experiment since then. But I think it should be done again. It's actually possible that the seeding had nothing to do with the abrupt turn. I read this article once about a pediatrician who's about to give a kid a vaccination. And just as she's about to do it, the kid has a seizure. And she thinks, you know, if she'd given this vaccine just a moment earlier, it would have looked like she'd caused the seizure. I mean, it would have seemed like too much of a coincidence. We mistakenly attribute causation all the time. And other hurricanes have been known to make these kinds of abrupt turns. In fact, a later study concluded that the turn had nothing to do with the seeding. But the timing was suspicious, and Irving was convinced that they'd done it. He was absolutely convinced that they had steered the hurricane, and weather control was proving that it was going to be a more significant advance than the atomic bomb. Within a few years, the GE cloud seeding team disbands. Irving retires in 1950, Vince leaves in 53, and eventually founds an atmospheric research center at SUNY Albany, where Bernie joins him. Kurt leaves at around the same time. And by the 1960s, he's finally become a famous writer. His breakthrough novel was Slaughterhouse-Five, largely a fictionalized account of his wartime experiences in Germany. It's an anti-war book, and Kurt becomes a darling of the anti-Vietnam War movement. The Vonnegut's were, were generally a family of pacifists, Bernie included. And so in the 70s, here's Kurt, right where he belongs. He's condemning war. He's a hero to college kids across the country. And then in 1971, he learns that his brother Bernie actually played a hand in the Vietnam War. Didn't you have an awful shock when, because when your, your brother did a lot of original work in the field of cloud seeding, didn't mm-hmm. he, and sending, is it silver iodide? Yeah. In, into the, into it's a TV cloud. interview, 90 Minutes Live, a, a Canadian TV show. Kurt is sitting in an armchair against a 70s studio backdrop. He's smoking a cigarette, stubs it out when they start talking about his brother's role in Vietnam. It was an investigative reporter who broke the news. Since 1967, the Air Force had been running a secret program, turning the weather against the North Vietnamese with cloud seeding. They were throwing everything they could think of out of airplanes while they were at it. Hell, they just just, just load up the sky with silver iodide. (laughs) See if that won't make them surrender. Later in the New York Times, an anonymous State Department official points out that this is actually a relatively humane type of warfare. In Operation Popeye, as it was called, they they seeded clouds over the Ho Chi Minh Trail using silver iodide, so Bernie's invention. And they were doing it to muddy up dirt roads, hamper enemy travel. And this official asked, what's worse, dropping bombs or dropping rain? After all, Operation Popeye's tagline? Make mud, not war. Except rain can kill too. In the summer of 71, North Vietnam was hit with especially heavy floods. People died. Was cloud seeding to blame? Military officials at the time said no. But as GE had learned two decades earlier, once you start tinkering with chaotic weather systems, it's hard to completely absolve yourself when natural disasters follow. And either way, Bernie was horrified. Yeah, no, he was shocked. And that was, that was the only instance uh, where somebody I knew well suddenly found out the defense people had, had been using his discoveries uh, for, a hostile, for hostile purposes. Bernie wasn't the only one who was disturbed by this. 
when news of Operation Popeye hit the public, the outcry was so great, Congress quickly moved to ban weather warfare, later signing on to an international treaty against it. And even though the agreement is considered toothless, today cloud seeding is used mainly for peaceful purposes. For things like fighting drought or increasing snowpack for hydroelectric projects. In fact, the main problem with cloud seeding these days isn't that it's too dangerous. It's that it's not that powerful. A study out of Wyoming found that under the right conditions, cloud seeding might increase precipitation by about 10 to 15 percent. So cloud seeding doesn't seem to be nearly the super weapon it was made out to be. And by the end of his life in 1997, Bernie Vonnegut came to terms with his creation. Kurt reports that on his deathbed, Bernie turned to him and said, if the superpowers decide to duke it out with silver iodide, I guess I can live with that. And to me, that shows that he, it was something he thought of for his whole life. He thought of what his duties as a scientist were, what his legacy as a scientist was, not just to science, but to humanity. The plane, it's gone. I know. Barnhouse blew it right out of the sky. He wouldn't let himself be taken alive. The radio drama, based on Kurt's very first published story, it ends like this. Professor Arthur Barnhouse, with his powers of dynamo-psychism, has gone into hiding. But after a few years, he reemerges and sacrifices himself so his powers can't be used by the military. All he ever wanted was peace. Peace? What's that? Now the arms race will start all over again. And with Barnhouse gone, what's left to stop it? The radio drama took some liberties. In Kurt's original story, Barnhouse doesn't kill himself. After he escapes the military, he travels all over the world, destroying weapons wherever he goes. Without their weapons, warring countries are forced grudgingly into a timeout, if not a true peace. Kurt's lesson in 1950, in his first published story, it's not that the risks of science and technology are so great that they are better off destroyed. Because in the right hands, in mindful hands, they have a vast potential for good. We just have to be careful who we trust them with. Undiscovered is reported and produced by me, Ella Fetter. And me, Annie Minoff. Our editor is Christopher Antaliata. To read the full story of the Vonnegut Brothers and General Electric, please check out Ginger Strand's The Brothers Vonnegut. It is a fantastic read, and we could not have made this episode without her. And if you want to learn more about Charles Hatfield and many other delightful stories about rain, check out Cynthia Barnett's Rain, A Natural and Cultural History. Special shout out this week to Scott Vonnegut, Bernie's son, and Chris Hunter from the MySci Museum in Schenectady. Bruce Bow from Weather Modification helped us out with the science of cloud seeding. And thank you also to Jim Schaefer for letting me snoop around in his dad's house. Fact checking help from Michelle Harris, original music by Daniel Peterschmidt. I am Robot and Proud, wrote our theme. Thanks also to Daniel Dana, Christian Scotta, Brandon Ector, and Rachel Bouton. And finally, thank you to our launch partner, the John Templeton Foundation. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 